Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Friday, April 20th, 2018. Today, Google wants chat to replace SMS. Apple can't quit Samsung yet. People are worried about MoviePass. Digital design pioneer Susan Kerr is honored. The Weekend Long Reads suggestions and Do Not Disturb While Driving might actually be having an impact. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. The Verge was reporting exclusively this morning that Google is going to unveil something called Chat. Yes, a new text messaging initiative that Google hopes will supplant SMS, complete with typing indicators, picture sharing, video sharing, group texts, and more. But Google is not launching yet another in its long line of messaging apps. In fact, Chat is not an app at all, and Google won't exactly own it. Instead, Chat will be based on the Universal Profile for Rich Communication Services standard, and Google has cajoled nearly every major cell phone carrier in the known world to support it. At least 55 carriers, and at the latest count, 11 OEMs. The idea is to finally create a default messaging and text service for Android phones that can compete with the seamless simplicity of iOS's iMessage. As Owen Williams pointed out in his newsletter this morning, there's a long-running joke that Google only knows how to introduce new chat services. There's been Hangouts, Hangouts Chat, Allo, Duo, Android Messages, and lest we forget, Google Wave. But this is a nut that Google has needed to crack for a while now, as Dieter Bohn writes in the lead of the Verge piece, quote, Top-tier Android phones can cost upwards of $1,000, and for that money you'll get some amazing features. It will have a stellar screen, top-flight camera, gobs of storage, and an absolutely atrocious texting experience, end quote. Later in the piece, he writes, Google's pitch to carriers is simple. SMS is going to be replaced one way or another. You can either be part of the replacement or continue to watch Apple and Facebook run away with text messaging, end quote. Apparently, AT&T and Verizon have agreed to support the RCS standard in recent months, clearing the way for the new chat service to be turned on for customers. So this isn't some new app that you can download today. It's a standard that will soon be integrated into chat apps in the same way that SMS is the current base-level fallback messaging standard on most mobile devices. But it's that carrier reliance that might be the fly in the ointment. Google is leading and Google is nudging but it's up to the carriers to actually turn this on. And in none of the pieces reporting on this, is there any indication when you might be able to see this interoperable chat nirvana come to your phone? If you're in the United States and you're on Sprint, then you have support for chat right now between compatible Android phones, and T-Mobile says the same thing is coming for their subscribers in a few months. But what about Apple? 
iPhone says Apple has been in discussions to support RCS on its iMessage platform. And there's also a couple of other interesting details. In theory, this new chat paradigm could operate in a desktop environment as well. So you could send text messages from a computer using a web browser. Microsoft is one of the companies signed up to support RCS. But one thing RCS currently doesn't support, end-to-end encryption. As Walt Mossberg said on Twitter, quote, Bottom line, Google builds an insecure messaging system controlled by carriers who are in bed with governments everywhere at exactly the time when world publics are more worried about data collection and theft than ever, end quote. And what of Google's most recent attempt at one messaging app to rule them all? I'm speaking of Allo, which launched just a year and a half ago. Google told Bone that they are, quote, pausing work on Allo and transferring almost the entire team off the project and back over to Android Messages, which we assume will support the new chat initiative on Android phones. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Apple's ongoing efforts to wean itself away from Samsung as the sole supplier of iPhone displays may have hit a snag. The problem is LG Display, which Apple had hoped to switch to for more of its OLED screen production this year, is encountering manufacturing problems. According to the piece, quote, Opinions within Apple are divided on whether LG Display can become a second source of OLED displays for the upcoming iPhones, end quote. Apple has been trying to lessen its dependency on Samsung for all sorts of components because Samsung is Apple's main rival in the smartphone hardware game. The display is one of the most expensive components of iPhones, and because Apple is so heavily reliant on Samsung for production, it doesn't have the leverage to reduce costs on the screens like it would have if it could source from a second supplier. LG Display is the leading manufacturer of OLED panels for televisions, but producing smaller panels for phones is a technically different kettle of fish, and seemingly something that LG Display hasn't mastered yet. The journal piece estimates that LG Display might only supply 20% of Apple's OLED needs this year, with Samsung producing the remaining 80%, but those numbers would be in flux if LG Display continues to have problems. People are worried about MoviePass, y'all. MoviePass has been called the Netflix for movies, i.e. movies in a theater. For $9.95 a month, MoviePass allows you to go to one movie in a theater each week, four movies per month. With this offer, MoviePass has reportedly racked up more than 2 million subscribers, but everyone has always noted that the glaring weakness in the MoviePass business model is that in a lot of cities, the price of just one movie ticket is more than $9.95, and for every movie you attend, MoviePass has to cough up full price to the theater. So really, if you took full advantage of MoviePass, you'd be putting the company in the hole to the tune of dozens of dollars every month. MoviePass is owned by a publicly traded company, Helios and Matheson Analytics. Earlier this week, Business Insider reported that Helios and Matheson's outside auditor had written a report that said it had, quote, substantial doubt about MoviePass's ability to continue operating as a, quote, going concern. MoviePass currently spends more to retain a subscriber 
than the revenue derived from that subscriber, and MoviePass's other sources of revenue are currently inadequate to offset or exceed the costs of subscriber retention, the report read. Helios and Matheson CEO Ted Farnsworth downplayed this report to Business Insider, saying such a warning was, quote, pretty much in most 10K filings when a company is running at a loss. But then yesterday, shares of Helios and Matheson Analytics, which trade under the ticker symbol HMNY, were down more than 40% in early trading after the company announced it would sell up to $150 million in an additional stock sale that seems to be earmarked to funding either MoviePass's expansion or simply its continued existence. Helios and Matheson recorded a net loss of around $150 million just last year in 2017, which was largely attributed to the company buying a majority stake in MoviePass late last year. The stock is now trading down 92% from its 52-week high closing price of $32.90 per share. On Friday, it opened at $2.43 a share. Now, let's hope that this additional financing is the windfall that will help see the company through to profitability. You might remember that MoviePass just acquired MoviePhone, and MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe told Variety recently that he expects the company to be cash flow positive by 2019. On Twitter, Quartz's David Gershgorn was all shrug shoulders emoji. Quote, Since day one of MoviePass, it was my intention to ride this VC money as far as I could until it crashed and burned. Susan Kerr is a name that is known alongside the giants of graphic design and all of design in general. If the name doesn't ring a bell to you, trust me, you'd recognize her work. As a member of the original Macintosh design team, Susan came up with the user interface graphics, icons, and fonts for the original Macintosh. These are the graphical design elements that have descendants on the Mac and iPhone that you are using today. If you ever played Solitaire on Windows, she designed that. Some of the icons she mocked up for Microsoft were essentially unchanged all the way up until Windows XP. She has most recently designed graphics for Facebook and Pinterest. I saw some of her original sketches and notebooks when they were on display in the Museum of Modern Art a few years ago. If the digital world has overthrown the real world, then Susan Kerr has single-handedly had perhaps the most influence on the visual soup that we're now all swimming in. The New Yorker today has a brief profile up of Kerr, because today she is receiving the prestigious AIGA medal, previous recipients of which include Charles and Ray Eames, Milton Glaser, Saul Steinberg, and Paul Rand, who for years was IBM's chief designer. I really have nothing to add to this story other than to simply offer a hat tip to this absolute legend of the digital era. The AIGA Awards Gala is tonight in New York City. Time for the weekend long reads. Let's begin with Racked, which has a piece that asks if algorithms have ruined style and taste. Racked is, of course, a fashion-oriented site, so it begins by examining Amazon's new Echo Look, which allows users to evaluate fashion choices. Quoting from the piece, 
Now Alexa helps you look your best, the product description promises. Stand in front of the camera, take photos of two different outfits with the Echo Look, and then select the best ones on your phone's Echo Look app. Within about a minute, Alexa will tell you which set of clothes looks better, processed by style analyzing algorithms and some assistance from humans. So I try to find my most stylish outfit, swapping out shirts and pants, and then posing stiffly for the camera. I shout, Alexa, judge me! But apparently that's unnecessary. Speaking of fashion, The Cut has a piece called Everything We Know About the Feud Between These Two Computer-Generated Instagram Influencers. I demand that you look this title up and read it because no summary of it I could give you would do it justice. But as the writer Emily Petrorea says in her lead, quote, if you need any further proof that we're living in the Matrix, here it is. The Wall Street Journal has a piece about how Iceland is re-examining the tech boom the country has experienced on account of its cheap power supplies, fueled by geothermal energy. Quoting from the piece, Iceland's first environmentalist government is now considering ways to slow the rise of data centers in the country by reviewing its rulebook for adding new power plants. Many lawmakers say they worry the tech boom is putting Iceland's pristine nature at risk, the crux of its crucial tourism industry. New York Magazine's Select All has a profile of punk rock cyber publishing pioneer Jamie Levy. Full disclosure, it's written by Claire Evans, the author of the recent excellent book, Broadband, the untold story of the women who made the internet. Claire's been a guest on my other podcast, the Internet History Podcast. The woman she's profiling, Jamie Levy, is an unsung hero of the early to mid-90s web. When it first went mainstream and publishing on the web was like the Wild West. Finally, over in Wired, you can read this last story online or really just go find yourself a literal newsstand, you millennial so-and-so you. The story in question is a deep dive into Uber in the post-Travis Kalanick era. In fact, I would say this is the most in-depth portrait of the company in the Dara Khosrowshahi era. But instead of describing it for you, I'll let the author of the piece tell you about it herself. Here's Wired's Jesse Hempel. They gave me so much access. Um, I think at one point I counted up 48 interviews on the records that I had. Essentially, anyone that I wanted to talk to, they put forward for me. One of the most interesting people that she spoke to was Leanne Hornsey, who stepped in to fill the long vacant head of HR role at Uber right at the very moment the Susan Fowler memo broke. Leanne Hornsey is just a flat-out professional. But I don't think that she was prepared for or expecting the mess she walked into at Uber. I mean, she kind of knew that it would be hard because when she told people that she was taking the job, they would look at her and say, oof, they really need you. Um, But she didn't really know what that meant. The weekend after Susan Fowler's memo came out on a Sunday, and it was a three-day weekend, and the Tuesday morning after that weekend was when she was supposed to get up, Leanne was supposed to get up and introduce herself to everyone. She kind of had nothing to say, at least nothing that was on the original script. Jesse spoke to Uber's new CEO, of course, but she also got a sense of how Khosrowshahi is being received among Uber's rank and file. I think people are really excited about Dara as a CEO. Um, Just generally, I think there were a lot of people who had come to Uber, not for Travis's leadership, but for the possibility of the company itself. And those people have spent the last year really wanting to get back to the business of doing work. Um, But I will also say that there are a group of people who aren't sure about him yet. Um, Travis, for all of his um, 
failings, he had a lot of things about his leadership style that really spoke to uh, particularly engineers in the Valley. Um, and Dara doesn't have product experience to the degree that Travis did. And so a lot of the engineers are kind of, you know, wait and see to see, you know, what he actually is able to lead them to create. The biggest surprise Hempel said she came away with after writing the piece was how committed the people at Uber are. Far from a company in turmoil, she found a company willing to refocus and redouble down on its core promise. The people inside Uber have a strong sense of mission and have a strong sense that what they're doing is important for the world. And after a couple of years in which there was just a real sense of discord between how the outside world saw them and how they saw themselves that a lot of people couldn't bridge, I think they feel sort of free to connect to that mission again. And that mission for the people inside Uber is that they believe that they're actually enabling universal transportation at every price point and enabling a group of people to have jobs that they wouldn't have access to otherwise that they feel are good jobs. The piece is titled, Can This Man Help Uber Recover from the Travis Kalanick Era? And it's in Wired. You can find links to every single one of these pieces in the show notes, so open up your podcast app, look at the episode you're listening to right now, and swipe over or swipe up or tap or whatever it takes to find the show notes and find the links to the stories. Finally today, how about a piece about how technology is actually making life better? Of course, it is a story about fixing a problem that technology itself has caused, but hey, let's be thankful for small favors these days, right? Slash Gear has a piece up about Apple's Do Not Disturb While Driving feature, which Apple launched on iPhones in September of last year. The feature prevents notifications, text messages, calls, etc. from surfacing while a vehicle is in motion. Of course, you have to keep the feature enabled for it to work, but according to the Slash Gear piece, around 70% of iPhone users are keeping Do Not Disturb While Driving on while they're driving. And in the data Slash Gear looked at, that led to people checking their phone 8% less while driving. That might not sound like a huge amount, of course, but it's a start. And over millions of miles driven, that can add up to real improvements in safety and actual lives saved from distracted driver accidents. The data Slash Gear was using for this story came from EverQuote, the makers of the EverDrive app, which is an app that users can download to keep track of their driving habits using the phone's GPS and other sensors. The app can track if you've been speeding, braking too much, accelerating too wildly, that sort of thing, and it can also track if you're checking your phone while driving. The EverDrive app has been downloaded by enough people to have accumulated data on 781 million miles worth of road trips. And according to EverQuote, in that data, it found that 37% of drivers use their phone in some way while they're driving in instances where they should instead be paying attention to the road. The only dangerous activity that is more common among American drivers is speeding. Apparently, we collectively speed on 38% of the car trips we take. But as they say, distracted driving is the new drunk driving, and so any decrease in the amount of phone-induced distracted driving is welcome. The Centers for Disease Control estimates that around 1,000 accidents each and every day can be blamed on distracted drivers. Hey guys, it's Friday. Put on the Friday music, and also it's 420. 
So recreate responsibly, everybody. In fact, speaking of distracted driving, Lyft has announced that today only you can get discounted rides to get yourself home safe if you've engaged in some 420 festivities. If you live in a city where pot is legal, you can get up to $4.20 off your next Lyft ride. The discounts are available today for riders in Denver, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland. And that's all for today. Check in with techmeme.com for tech news and headlines all weekend. I've been your host, Brian McCullough. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianMCC. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>